This week on Rotten Righteous, we ask the question... Have you ever been so cold that you'd wear someone else's underpants? Hello and welcome to Rotten or Righteous Mash and Sackcloth. We're a podcast, which should be apparent, but we're sterile. With me today, as always... <laughs> Go ahead, get them Tic Tacs in now. <laughs> yep, I poured them out. No more news, no more news, no more noise till later in the show. With me today, as always, I would freeze to death before I put on a pair of his long johns. He's Scott Judge. And I'd let you too, buddy. And me, well, I'm Zach Geiler, and I'm still still just sorry we're doing this. Not as half as sorry as the people that are listening. This week, when we normally, you know, share with you a piece of news that I spring upon Scott... And have him react to to something he didn't know about is a little bit different because uh, instead I want to tell Scott about this great new cult I found out about. I can't. I mean, I'm 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 in 100 because it's called Cult of Love. Nope, it's called the the Third Heaven of the Nation's Millennium General Assembly. <laughs> what? The Third Heaven. The Third Heaven of the Nation's, of the nation's Millennium. Of the assembly. nation, no, of the nation's millennium general assembly. General assembly. Well, yes. First of all, it's not. It's like the saddest cult you've ever heard of, because this guy named James James Hampton uh, really wanted to to start his own religious group, um, but nobody joined him, and so he just lived alone as a janitor. But he did create the throne of the third heaven of nations or of the nation's millennial general assembly, which he built by himself in secret over 14 years in his garage in northwest Washington, D.C. It is a complex work of religious art that it was made out of various uh, scavenged materials such as aluminum, gold foil, old furniture. Pieces of cardboard, light bulbs, jelly jars, shards of mirrors, and desk blotters held together with tacks, glue, pins, and tape. The complete work of this throne of the third heaven of the nation's Millennium General Assembly, you have to say the whole title when you talk about it, uh, consists of 180 objects, many of them inscribed with quotes from the Book of Revelation. And the centerpiece of the exhibit is... Well, it's a throne that's seven feet tall and built on the foundation of an old maroon cushioned armchair with the words fear not at its crest. Now, Scott, I will allow you to Google throne of the third heavens of the nation's Millennium General Assembly because I need you to see how awesome this is. I'm not even joking. It's absolutely beautiful. It's incredibly detailed. You see it? What? Yes. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? This is made out of a bunch of Holy bunch of trash. Cow. 
Now, on the left-hand side, all of those pieces are related somehow to the Old Testament. On the right-hand side of the throne of the Third Heaven of the Nation's Millennium General Assembly are pieces related to the New Testament. Now, he also believed that he was a prophet by the name of St. James, and he left behind a 108-page a 108-page loose-leaf notebook titled St. James, the Book of the Seven Dispensation. The only problem is, is that he wrote it in an unknown script that remains undeciphered. Now, you could say that he was just making stuff up, but a linguistic expert looked at it and tried to decipher it, and he found that it is actually in line with an actual language. Like, it has, has organization and consistency throughout that it does say that it's an actual language, but he said that it's likely that uh, Hampton wrote this in his own made-up language while he was speaking in tongues. So it will never actually be switched over to English because he wrote 108 pages of just writing actual words, but not in English, but in his made-up spiritual language. Now, his whole life, he approached people to try and get them involved in his uh, in his religious movement, but everyone basically just said, no, wait, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so he just lived. Appreciate the offer, but I think this time I'm going to have to pass. Yeah, so he, <laughs> this is even, I, it, the more I read about his life, the more sad I get for him. All right, because clearly he had talent. It is absolutely beautiful. I mean, you can't say that it's not kind of all inspiring, this this art piece, right? He's 180 pieces made out of trash. But... Uh, yeah, his, his use of silver and gold is pretty impressive. Actually, it's uh, a lot of the, the tan that you see there was originally purple foil, but over time it faded into... Ah. So it was probably even more pretty. Uh so this is a quote from his actual Wikipedia page. Uh, Hampton also created wall plaques with Roman numerals 1 through 10 and his indecipherable script suggesting commandment-bearing tablets. The largest plaque on the left side of the display contains the text Nation's Readjustment Plan in trimmed gold foil. Hampton approached local churches about using his creation as a teaching tool, but none were interested. <laughs> Find that hard to believe. <laughs> Two reporters came to view the display, but did not deem it worthy of news coverage. Hampton hoped to develop a storefront ministry, but never achieved that goal. <laughs> His whole Wikipedia page is just how this dude failed at starting a cult. Wow. This guy's a nut. Okay, but he had talent, right? Oh, yes. I mean it. I, I mean, I know that that I'm making fun of him, but seriously, the looking at this thing for the first time blows your mind. It is astoundingly beautiful. It really is. Let me tell you the end of Hampton's story. Hampton died of stomach cancer on November fourth, nineteen sixty four, without having any local church wanting to use his lesson plans, without finding a good God fearing woman without starting a storefront ministry, 
and he was buried at Warren Chapel Baptist Church in Ellery, South Carolina. Now, this art was not discovered until, or his his throne wasn't discovered until after his death, because the owner of the garage that he built the throne of the of the third heaven of the nation's Millennium General Assembly in wasn't getting rent. So he came to find out why he wasn't being paid. And he found all this artwork in that garage. No one knew about this. He kept this project secret from most of his friends and family. As a matter of fact, his relatives first heard about it when his sister came to claim his body. So they go up to the morgue, find his body. The landlord comes around and says, hey, he's got a bunch of stuff in the garage. And she looked at it and said, I really don't want anything to do with this. My God. <laughs> <laughs> I really wasn't that close to my brother. <laughs> I didn't know him that well. No. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Just, his life is so sad. <laughs> now, when his sister yeah. refused to take the artwork, the landlord placed an ad, an advertisement in local newspaper. Ed Kelly, a sculptor, answered the advertisement and was so astounded by the exhibit, he contacted art collector Alice Denny. Denny brought art dealers Leo Castelli and Ivan Karp and artist Robert Rauschenberg to see the exhibit in the garage. Harry Lowe, the assistant director of the Smithsonian Art Museum, told the Washington Post that walking into the garage was like opening Tut's tomb. Now, Hampton's story finally came to light at the end of 1964, the beginning of 1965, when the Washington Post uh, did a story on him. Harry Lowe, the assistant director of the Smithsonian Art Museum, paid Hampton's outstanding rent, took possession of the art display, and then donated it to the Smithsonian American Art Museum, where it has been on display ever since. Wow. So you can... Trip to DC is in order, dude. I never went to the American Art Museum because I was like, I don't really care about art. There's other cool stuff that the Smithsonian has, and now you do. <laughs> All I know is if somebody would have told me that there was a throne of the third heaven of the nation's Millennium General Assembly in our American Art Museum, I would have been there first. This wow. guy was absolutely insane while at the same time a genius and go look up again. I'm going to say it, the throne of the third heaven of the nation's millennium general assembly, because it'll blow you away. Just pictures of it will blow you away. It's really cool. So when we going, I'm thinking alive from there sometime this summer. The only way I'll do that is if they let me sit in the throne on the throne, <laughs> the third heaven. Hey, we can make that. We can make that happen, Zach. I mean, what are they going to do? Throw us out? I mean, all we need is you want it with a quick picture. Have fun reading James Hampton's sad, sad, sad life. <laughs> <laughs> it's, mm. Scott, I'm just. I feel bad because, like, every you know, obviously, I don't support cults, but this guy believed in what he did, and every step of the way. It just got a little worse for him all the way up until the very end when the Smithsonian stepped in. I mean, when his sister looked at the art and just said, nah, I'm not, I'm not taking this back with me. 
I just got new couches. I have no room for this. You know, you know how I am. I mean, I, I'm really thinking about the throne of the third heaven of the nation's millennium general assembly salamander letters. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just I'm going to tie it all in together. Well, it does seem like something an insane Mormon would do, but this guy was not a Mormon. No, he was the president of the third heaven of the nation's millennium general assembly. And if he wasn't the president, he's an idiot. Oh my god. Because goodness. he was the only one. How do you not elect yourself president? All right. Let's get into why everybody keeps coming back, and that's for us to talk about MASH. This week, we watched the 19th episode of Season 1. We are almost done with Season 1 of MASH. Only 36 more seasons to go. Uh, Yeah, I I was like, oh, cool, we're getting close to the end of first season. And then I looked that the episode was number 19 in a series of 256 episodes. Yep, we're narrowing her down, folks. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, episode 19, which is titled The Long John Flap, was written Arr, by Hawkeye himself, Alan Alda. This kind of makes sense, because after sometimes you hear the bullet, I feel like they needed a stupid, funny episode, at least a couple. They got that with Dear Dad yeah. again, and then this episode... <laughs> It's great. Then the next one. It's freezing at the 407th 7th. Unless you're Hawkeye. Because he's got some long, woolly underwear from home. First of all, Wiki Mash, as much as I appreciate you and I plagiarize from you on a regular basis, they make it very clear in this episode several times that it is a cotton blend. Not woolly. A cotton blend. I just want to get the facts straight. It's not mammoth. No, I'm just saying, woolly long johns make me itch already. I'm just thinking about having something made out of wool covering my whole body, and I'm uncomfortable. Maybe if it was like alpaca. You're thinking about wearing a bear rug right now, aren't you? I'll put on some alpaca. Some alpaca pants. I think you should. If you ask Kelsey, without pants, I look like I'm wearing alpaca pants. Can't argue with her. No need to know how I know that. Moving on. Trapper has a cold. And he guilt trips Hawkeye into giving the Long Johns to him. Then Trapper loses them to Radar at poker. As we've already discussed, Radar's a little, a little nasty horn dog. He's like a human chihuahua. Mm. He's going to trade the Long Johns to Nurse Bedos for a little... A little hanky-panky. But the cook shows him an entire cooked leg of lamb with mint jelly. And Radar is like, adios, nurse. I've got a, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a date with lamb chop. Now, I don't like lamb, but I also don't, I don't like, know that I've ever eaten it. But I also don't like prostitution, so I don't really know where I fall on what I would choose in this situation. <laughs> If it was like a prime rib, sold all day, every day. I don't care if my wife was back there freezing. If someone offered me a full prime rib, cooked medium rare, perfect. Oh, it's got a crackly outer coating just glistening and the juiciness. Oh, you can have you can have my long johns and the underwear I'm wearing. I'll give you my shirt and my pants, too. 
Alrighty then. So, now the cook has the long johns, and in comes Burns to warm up his patootie with the, the cook's stove. But Burns also sees a little bit of grease, and so he he's not having it because he wants his mess in ship shape. You don't want no dang-dang grease. <laughs> You're in the army now, son. And so he's about ready to demote the cook. But the cook's like, hey, 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 you let me keep being a nasty boy, and I'll give you some long johns. Now, Burns, again, never saw a pair of someone else's underwear that he didn't want. So, of course, he's going to take him up on this deal. That's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, this whole episode is disgusting when you think about it, Scott. It's really disgusting. So Burns has. I think has, you need a little wash. So Burns has the Long Johns now, and he goes over to Hot Lips' tent. And Hot Lips is freezing to death because, again, it's cold in the 4077. And they get into an argument about the fact that Frank is married. And Hot Lips asks Frank, What would you give up in order to be in a relationship with me? And, and Frank tries to, you know, do the poetic thing, going, I, I, I would, I'd give up the moon and the stars. Hot Lips ain't having it. She's too cold. That'd be nice if you had those things. Would you give up your wife? And then Frank does say one of the funniest lines in the show so far. He goes, I live right down the street from my minister. What would he think? <laughs> oh, Frank. That's a funny line. I don't care. Frank's uh, an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but in the end, Frank Frank shows his undying affection for Hot Lips not by divorcing his wife, but by giving her some long johns. Scott, do you want to share the fast fact about why Margaret doesn't put these long johns on right away, but instead leaves them on a hanger? Yeah, I guess. It's, it's pretty disgusting. The reason Hot Lips didn't uh, put them on immediately is because Frank had been wearing them and uh, they were covered in sweat. And as you notice, Margaret leached up to feel the Long Johns to see if they were dry yet before she put them on. Yeah. Something about Frank Burns' sweat just... Something about that noise that you make with your mouth. Oh, gosh. Sounds like he just walked up a flight of steps. Um. <laughs> so, the long johns are not on Margaret, but hanging up on a hanger. And when you know, a hairy Armenian arm goes in the crack of the tent and grabs those long johns when Hot Lips' back is turned. I wonder who that could be. Well, we only know of 12 hairy Armenians on this show. Do they all have arms? Mm-hmm. Except for armless Joe. <laughs> Turns out that the person that robs Hot Lips is Klinger, who, no. who steals it because he is just having a terrible draft 
up his skirt. I mean, he is wearing a lovely short green dress number with just a pink stole. Uh, he he He's in rough shape. He, he complains about the fact that he can't afford to buy fur, and so he's freezing to death, and that's why he took him. But he's riddled with guilt, our dear Klinger is. And so he goes up to fr- or, or he goes to Father Mulcahy and confesses to what he's done. And Father Mulcahy says, you know, I'll absolve you of these sins, but you gotta give me them long underwears. So that way you're not tempted to steal them. <laughs> the next scene, Father Mulcahy is giving the long underwears to our dear beloved leader. Mr. Blake. Blake. Thank you. Could not, not before. Could not think of that name. Keep in mind that this is the next morning. Uh, father decided to spend the evening in the long underwear uh, and get the first good night's sleep he had, as he says, in 10 days. Well, he didn't want to bother the colonel so late. I mean, what a guy. Father Mocha, he gives... Henry Blake, the underwear, saying, hey, this is stolen property. And so, Blake goes, well, I'm going to launch a thorough investigation of this, which involves of him asking Radar, hey, did you lose anything? Radar saying no. And he goes, well, I investigated, and then immediately putting the long underwear on his own body. And that's when Hawkeye and Trapper arrive, and they want their long undies back. And how did they get them off him? Well, it just so happens that Henry had himself a case of appendicitis right when they decided that they wanted their underwear back. So they go back to the OR to take out a dirty appendix, and Hawkeye finally gets his underwear back. The end. Not one of the best episodes. I thought it was cute. I thought it was cute. It was low stakes. Nobody died. Nobody made me feel bad. It was just a story about an underwear. Have you ever been so cold that you'd wear someone else's underpants? No, I've never been that cold. Neither have I, but then again, I'd have to lose quite a bit of weight before I got that cold. <laughs> I've never been a skinny man, so no. I'm I'm like a bear. I'll just if I if I get stuck out in the cold, I'll just find myself a nice cave and eat some straw and, and other leaves and vegetation to clog up my butt and I'll just fall asleep for the winter. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Without speech. I don't know if that's true. I just remember Dr. Doolittle, too. He was talking to the bear, and the bear's like, you want uh-huh. me to spend the winter sleeping with a plug in my butt? Because bears apparently eat a bunch of foliage, so they don't poop a whole bunch when they're hibernating. I did not know that. And now you do. Episode 20 is called um, The Army-Navy Game. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, great. We have a third uh, light episode in a row that doesn't deal with anything that's difficult to talk about or anything anything that makes you a little anxious. Well, you're wrong, and you're an idiot for thinking that. Radar is collecting bets on the upcoming Army-Navy game. I know. Shocking. 
And Hawkeye and Trapper and some nurses are with Henry in his office, and he turn, tunes in the game on the radio. But before the game can even get underway, wouldn't you know that, that man, those North Koreans, <laughs> couldn't they wait a little bit before dropping a whole bunch of bombs onto the MASH camp? They don't, though. And they're getting just shocked with shells. Everybody's getting shell-shocked. Artillery's coming, exploding everywhere. Everybody's got a big, uh, or a mattress. There's 400 extra mattresses there because everybody's carrying one around as if that's going to save your life. I'm sorry, but if I'm being, if I'm being shocked by shells, I'm going to leave the, uh, I'm going to leave the mattress back in my bed. I'm not going to, like, that just makes you look silly. You're, that, what's that mattress going to do? Nothing. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah. It's not going to stop anything. So, the doctors run over to post-op, check on the patients, and at this point in time, Henry's left alone in the office trying to get some help, trying to be like, hey, can you stop the ding-dang artilleries from falling on my head? Oh, what, didn't you love that song? From, from the olden days? Artillery keeps falling on my head. <laughs> yeah. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! So Henry's in his office. He's calling in the he's calling in the higher command. Like, hey guys, can you stop bombing us, please? Or can you do something about the people that are bombing us? And everyone's like, it's the Army Navy game, bro. Calm down, okay? We'll take care of this just a little bit. All right, just let us watch this. It's not even halftime yet. Rude. And while he's doing this, do you watch the Army Navy game every year? Hey, guess what? I don't do. I do. I love it. That. See, personally, I don't think our, our armed forces should be fighting each other. Really? <laughs> they're not fighting. They're just playing. Oh, they're just out for a good time. Well, I'll tell you what. That's why they're not at Ohio State. Because our boys are trained killers. Every game's a war. <laughs> wow. That's RodnerRighteous at gmail.com. We don't pussyfoot around playing for fun. I don't care if you're the the Toledo Zips or Notre Dame. You come into the shoe, you better come ready. Because we'll be dropping artillery on your head. The Toledo Zips. That's the mixed team between the Toledo Rockets and the Akron Zips. I don't care. They're both terrible That's teams the- from up north, northern Ohio. <sighs> Henry anyway. is by himself with radar. <laughs> There's nobody there. <laughs> oh, he was all alone. Nobody notices until somebody notices. Henry is by himself, except for radar. And, well, one of the artillery shell gets a little too close and... Henry Dunn did exploded, but he only got a little cut on his head, so he's pretty much cool. They basically put a panty liner up there and wrap it in some gauze and move along. That's exactly what his bandage looked like, Scott. I know. I was I, I was really wondering if they use Playtex because they have those wings for added protection. <laughs> oh, wow. 
so Henry's down for the count because he's got a severe concussion. He doesn't know where he's at. He's talking into a phone that has a wire cut on it because of the artillery shell. He's done. So Hawkeye's about to take over, start giving orders. But that's when Frank comes in. He's like, hey, I'm the one in charge because I'm second in command. And then Hawkeye's like, great, what do you want to do? And then Frank's like, I don't know, pee my pants because I'm a little girl. And then Hawkeye's like, okay, fine, you do that. But I'm going to go ahead and try to save some lives because I'm Hawkeye. And I'm a hero. The next thing you know, blip, blip. That's the sound of an artillery shell falling and hitting the ground, but not exploding. Blip, blip, blip. Right in the middle of Mash, there is the most perfectly placed artillery shell you ever done did see. Ever. I mean, it is straight up and down. The ring of dirt around it is just so beautifully placed. It almost looks, Scott, like they weren't actually being artillery. Like somebody put it there. You know, if you would have dug a little hole and then put the tip of that bomb in it and put the dirt back around it, you couldn't have done a better job. Now we've got this unexploded ordinance in the middle of the middle of mash. And uh, what's what's going to what's going to happen? Well, the first thing they do is they get a call to Colonel Hirsch at Regimental HQ. I would only know that, or I only know that because I'm reading it off of the MASH wiki. I could not have told you that it was Regimental HQ or that this guy's name was Colonel Hirsch. But that's where we're at. He's busy listening to the game. He's a little upset that he has to turn it down. But Hirsch tells Hawkeye the first thing he needs to do is to take a stethoscope and check to see if that bomb's still ticking. Now, who's going to do this? Because it's dangerous. I mean, this thing could potentially blow up at any moment. And so, we've got Frank, Hawkeye, and a guy we've never met before. His name is Billy Doolittle, first class. And they all draw straws. And when you know... Frank picks the short straw. I thought it was going to be Billy Doolittle because we don't know or care about him. And if this thing blows up, we could still have a show. Yes. It's Frank. Now, we still have a show if Frank blows up. Yeah, I can't wait till Frank blows up because his replacement is my favorite character on the show. I do. I love love Frank's replacement. He's my favorite. Emerson, Winchester, Hmm. the third. I think Kelsey fell a little bit out of love with me one night when I was watching Frasier, and I got really excited because the actor that plays Winchester came on. And I think the the combination of me getting excited that an actor from MASH was guest starring on Frasier was just too much for her. (laughs) We like jumping up and down and... I was, running like, oh. around. I was like, oh, that's Winchester. And she's like, you're 27. <laughs> See, I don't care how old I am. It's still Winchester. <laughs> I could be 127. That's Winchester. Anyways, he goes out, checks the bomb. Guess what? It's still ticking. Tick, 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 tick. That's what it sounds like. And this is what 
Oh, Scott, give me something. I want to. I want to do a sound effect. A chipmunk. Hey, let's just keep going. A mouse? Squeaky squook? A rhinoceros? Squeaky squook? (laughs) An elephant? (gasps) You after Taco Tuesday? That was that was the cork in my butt from when I was hibernating. <laughs> you were hibernating. Okay, so it's ticking. But now we need to figure out which bomb it is and how to defuse it. The only problem is, it's not the Army's bomb. So they called the Navy. And the Navy's like, hey, can you call back? We're, we're tied up in the third quarter, okay? They're like, well, we would love to, but there's a bomb that's ticking. In our in our front yard, could you please tell us how to disarm it? But it's not the Navy's bomb. Not only that, they find out that it isn't Russian or Chinese or Polish or Czech or Canadian or Vietnamese or Japanese, Taiwanese, Cantonese, or Kentucky, Polonese, Swedenese, Spainanese, Francanese. Dutchanese. The Navy guy's like, I don't know whose bomb this is, but I promise you, as soon as the game's over, I'm going to find out. <laughs> soon as. You just be patient, will ya? Now, Henry's back on his feet by this point in time, and he's quietly hoping that, that the camp is still there when they actually find out. In the meantime, with no way to listen to the game, the camp have no choice but to pass their time and not thinking about their potential, you know, death. Demise. Which doesn't make a lot of sense to me because you could literally just walk one way or the other. Yeah, what a plan that would be. Let's just walk away from the bomb. Hawkeye Trapper and Ugly John, you remember Ugly John. He's the John that's ugly. Mm -hmm. Play some cards. Frank and Hot Lips have a romantic moment alone. Klinger has changed from his usual woman's wear to a fine suit, telling Father Mulcahy that if he's killed by the bomb, he does not want his mother to see him buried in a dress. I'll be honest with you, this story made me, like, almost tear up. I love Klinger. Because Klinger's like, Father Mulcahy doesn't even recognize him at first, because he's in a suit. And he's like, look, we're gonna, we might die. This bomb might go off and then it's done for us. And and here's the thing. I wore this suit when I was drafted. Wasn't planning on putting it on again until after I left. I'm not a Nancy boy. His words, not mine. I just wear dresses because I'd do anything to get out of the army. But if this is how I get out, this is how I get out. I'm going to go out dressing like an Armenian gangster. Which, by the way, <laughs> is my second favorite Martin Scorsese movie. Yeah. Armenian gangster. Henry's telling uh, Radar about a time he was working as the sideline medical guy for Illinois. They're down by two against Ohio State. And their star player, their star halfback, goes down with a terrible sprain. A few minutes, a few seconds left on the clock. Again, down by two. They're right on their goal line. 
They're down more than two because then they would have just kicked a field goal. They're down by six, let's say. It doesn't really matter. All right, they're right on the goal line. All this star halfback has to do is punch it in, and they beat the Ohio State Buckeyes. But he goes down. Their star halfback goes down. And so Henry rushes out on the field, and he works with all of his might and all of his medical know-how to tape up that leg as best as he knows how. Then the play, boom, snaps off. Hand to the halfback. He steps on his ankle. It breaks. And he goes down screaming. Because Henry taped the wrong ankle. <laughs> <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) And how does the halfback Tank Washington replay or repay Henry for this loss? Well, every year he goes out and shoots the porch light on Henry's house. After hearing that uplifting story, that their their commander during this potential crisis is an absolute idiot. Radar goes outside and bumps into Lieutenant Hardy. Let me tell you, she looks like a Western bacon cheeseburger. That's why they called her Lieutenant Hardy. Lots of onions. She looks like Mayor McCheese, but with an onion ring for her uh, tongue. (laughs) (laughs) And then she started doing some Armenian gangster rap. So, yeah, he bumps into Lieutenant Hardy, who's about, what, five feet taller than Radar? And uh, Radar's like, listen, I have been worshipping you from below for weeks now. And I was just wondering, seeing as we're about to die, uh, if you wanted to go to the supply closet with me. And Lieutenant Hardy's like... Boom. Yes. Yes, I do. And I said, Lieutenant Hardy. I don't care if Hawkeye's in the middle of disarming that bomb. He would be a better choice than Radar. (laughs) At this point in time, Radar's a dirty little bird. He probably's got the herp derps. But they run off to the supply tent. Meanwhile, the Navy commander finally calls back and tells Henry that the bomb is... Wait for it. I'm literally reading the summary. The summary has the bomb is from ellipses, parenthesis, wait for it, close parenthesis, ellipses. They're, they're building tension in the summary. This is why we read these, folks. The bomb belongs to, wait for it, the CIA? What? What? What a crazy can can oh, what's the CIA doing popping popping drums or bomb? <laughs> what are they doing popping drums out what's on the bash? <laughs> We're dumb stupefied right now. What's going on? The CIA's dropping the bombs right down on the mash. But here's the problem: it's the CIA, and they're not going to tell no secrets, and they're not going to tell you no lies. Ask me no secrets, tell you no lies. I'm the CIA, and I'm one cool guy. You're here. My name is Zach, and I'm here to say I'm in the CIA in a spying way. 
I drop a bomb right on top of your mash, and if you're not careful, I'm going to kick your butt. I said butt. Okay. So they don't know how exactly to get this bomb diffused, but they have a pretty good idea. Henry's behind a bunch of sandbags as uh, Trapper and Hawkeye approach the bomb carrying mattresses, so, you know, they're safe. You ever seen that movie, The Hurt Locker? Jeremy Renner and how he goes out there to defuse bombs. And he's in that bomb suit. Do you think he watches this and goes, I could have just carried me a Serta. That would have been so much easier. Being in that big old bomb suit in the middle of Afghanistan. I could have had a V8, too. <laughs> um, I'm not, no. I'm going to cut that out. No one will ever hear me laugh at one of your jokes. Anyways, <laughs> the bomb probably has more than an hour before it goes off on its own. Unless it stops ticking. Because if it stops ticking, then they have two minutes before it detonates. So they go out there, they listen, it's got a faint tick. Things are really intense. Wait for it. And Henry's, you know, behind a sand bag wall, you know, safe. Shouting at Hawkeye and, and Trapper what to do with a megaphone. He's like, okay, you need to undo the nut that holds the whole bomb thing together. I know, technical jargon, bear with me. And so, <laughs> they undo the nut. <laughs> like a little bit. Like, not even a, a lot, just a little tiny bit. And then he's like, okay, now take the bomb casing off. They don't even have to take the nut off. Why did they have to loosen the nut? They could have just lifted that bomb casing up at any point in time, Scott. They never removed the nut that holds everything down. <laughs> so they pick up the bomb casing. Two wires are attached. And then Henry's like, cut the wires. So they cut the wires. And then Henry goes, after you stop the timer. <laughs> Which may be my favorite part of that whole movie. <laughs> Her whole show, not movie, the whole show. I love how a direction comes together. And so, the bomb stops ticking. And the two doctors are like, we've only got two minutes to get out of here. We better walk four feet to the left and then dive on top of our mattresses. <laughs> it was so stupid. And then, uh, boom. Kablooey. The bomb detonates. There's just a little baby explosion as a bunch of papers go flying into the sky. Turns out it was a propaganda bomb with leaflets. And they pick up one of the leaflets and it says, Give, your, or give yourself up. You can't win. Signed, Douglas MacArthur. Douglas MacArthur? Wow. Old General MacArthur himself. In the end, Navy defeated Army, 42-36. to 36. Father Mulcahy wins the football pool. And Radar notices what he thinks is one of the nurses hanging up laundry. And he approaches her, <laughs> trying to make another move. But it turns out to be Klinger, who's back to wearing his old women's dresses. No bluey for him on that day. And they ask... They ask Father Mulcahy, how does he know? Oh, how does he always win all these bets? He's like, I'm Catholic. That's all I do is gamble and drink. 
There goes our Catholic viewership. Oh, this is a special. This is a special for you. May 17th and 19th of 1536. I just want to remind you as we... I think I know this. As we read from uh, the book, I probably should give this guy credit because we do just read straight from his book. It's a good, it's an okay book. There's some language, but it's okay. Uh, as we read from Bad Days in History, a gleefully grim chronicle of misfortune, mayhem, and misery for every day of the year by Michael Farquhar. I want to remind you that your day might have been bad. We didn't make it better, but it could have been worse. It wasn't this bad. Thomas, hey, I used this as a de- devotional the other day in church. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry. Thomas Bolin could not have been soaring higher in the court of Henry VIII. He was the king's father-in-law, after all, and enjoyed all the bounty that accompanied such an exalted position. But in May 1536, <laughs> ghastly accusations arose are charging incest between his children, Queen Anne Boleyn and George Viscount Rockford. The queen, the salacious indictment against her red, had tempted her brother with her tongue in the said George's mouth. I want to try that again with an English accent. The charges against her red that she had tempted her brother with her tongue in said George's mouth. And the said George's tongue and hairs, and also with kisses, presents, and jewels. Although, jewels, not Jews, I realized my accent was. (laughs) (laughs) Small detail. Don't know what you meant. (laughs) Although most historians consider the charges absurd. As did many contemporaries, who even bet on George's acquittal, the siblings were duty, duly condemned in separate trials held on May 15th and found guilty. It was left to their maternal uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, to pronounce the death sentences. Thus, Thomas Boleyn lost his only son to the headman's axe on May 17th, and his daughter, Anne, to a French swordsman two days later. Mm-mm-mm. I thought that was... How in the world did you use that as a devotional? Hey, everybody. I was thinking something else. Uh, It was about somebody that died, though. Thanks for coming out here uh, to our our Wednesday Night Devotional. I want to tell you about a couple incestuous people who got their heads cut off. (laughs) The moral of the story is. You know who else got their head cut off? Paul. He was a good guy. Come forward as we stand and sing. Amen. (laughs) No, it wasn't that. But it was, I think it was like from 1535. Where some monks got got hung. Do you know Ellie sold a vehicle to some monks from Columbus? It was like her proudest moment. The only monks I know of live at that weird temple outside of Wheeling. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That. No, there's some somebody. I know these guys were from uh, Columbus. Look that up too. When you're done looking up the throne of the third heaven of the fourth millennial of the dispensation of. Galileo. Um, look up Buddhist Buddhist temple in West Virginia in the middle of the most hillbilly country you would ever want to visit. There is a beautiful golden temple 
just filled with monks. Hold up, what did you call it? It's called the Golden Temple. Oh, I thought it was called the Wheeling Monkery. No, it's not called the Wheeling Monkery. It's not called... If it's called the Wheeling Monkery, I will send you a dollar. Nothing, is it? I don't even think monkery is a word. I don't know. Monkey is. Let me make sure. Is that See, what and Google I said? You, Did Google just you know tell what? you? Here's, Did you mean here's monkey? Here's the problem. I spell it with a U. Let me see if spelling what? it with an O makes a difference. You spelled monk with a U. On M- purpose. M-U-N-K. N-K-E-R-Y. Monkery. <laughs> and then Google said, did you mean wheeling monkey? And I hope you said yes, because I want to know what in the world is the wheeling monkey. I-, I believe there's one of them. I don't know. Nope, there's nothing on the Buddhist, what's it called, temple. Can anybody add to Wikipedia? I mean, do you have to be bona fide or anything? Good night, everybody. guy this looks like the guy that played in team wolf <laughs> no you don't have the right guy you remember father in team wolf yeah uh, you, apparently his name's james hampton too no, you need, is in also you need